1: New season out on Spotify soon.
3: Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, mental health conditions, and substance use that may be disturbing. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. It's a trifling paradox that those who care about keeping up good reputations are often those least capable of maintaining them. While they make public efforts to be liked, they can't stop themselves from questionable behavior behind closed doors. In this paradox, more than one politician springs to mind. They think if they're rich enough, well-groomed enough, decorated enough, they can win others over without questions. Though he worked as a doctor, Edward William Pritchard fit the political mold. He bent over backwards plotting his way into lavish housing, submissive women and success as a doctor, all for the sake of public approval. But unlike politicians caught in a scandal, Dr. Pritchard handled the threat of exposure like only a doctor poised to treat ailments could do. He treated his threat with poison. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to, do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and
2: I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm excited to be assisting Alistair with some medical insight into our story of Dr. Edward William Pritchard, a pinnacle of the medical community, except for his lack of integrity, his lack of training, and his abundance of cruel and murderous treatments. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all
3: other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Dr. Edward William Pritchard, a philandering poisoner who is thought to have claimed at least three lives in the 1860s. Today, we'll explore Dr. Pritchard's constant search for validation and the unsavory deeds he committed to claim a high-standing career as a surgeon, including his first suspected murder. Next week, We'll discuss Dr. Pritchard's more notorious crimes, the killings of his wife and mother-in-law. And we'll cover how another doctor caught on to Pritchard's deadly plot, helping authorities bring him down. All this and more, coming up. Stay with us. In early May, 1863, house servant Lizzie McGurn laid in the care of her married employer, 37-year-old Dr. Edward William Pritchard. He urged her to relax as he grabbed tools that had once impressed her. Now, they seemed to glare at her ominously as she fretted over the abortion that Pritchard insisted upon because he had gotten her pregnant. Pritchard promised Lizzie that she'd be safe, that he would be gentle. But beneath the sound of his heavy-handed assurances, Lizzie couldn't hear the unscrewing of a bottle, and she couldn't see the items Pritchard held in his steady hands, a bottle of chloroform and a match. They were clever tools in Pritchard's desperate plot. If Lizzie ever told the truth, Pritchard's precious reputation would be forever ruined. And he couldn't risk that. He'd worked his whole life to build it. It began some 37 years earlier, on December 6, 1825, when Edward William Pritchard was born to a family of well-connected men in service. His father, John White Pritchard, had served as a captain in England's Royal Navy, a fact that he never failed to remind his sons. Like many military men of his day, John emphasized the importance of maintaining a good reputation, which likely informed young Edward William Pritchard's values. From childhood, he may have been conditioned to believe that success in the armed forces was the only true way to win his father's approval. Facing similar pressures, his brothers became a surgeon in the Royal Navy and a secretary to the Naval Commander-in-Chief at Plymouth. And as soon as he was old enough, Pritchard began working himself. In September 1840, 14-year-old Pritchard took on an apprenticeship with two local surgeons. It helped that his father put in a good word for him. While we can't say for certain what sorts of skills Pritchard practiced at this time, we can speculate based on what someone in his shoes today might study.
2: Though just 14, Pritchard was undergoing a formal apprenticeship to be a surgeon, which may have involved some watered-down but similar responsibilities of contemporary medical students. These usually took about two to three years and involved studying medical texts, accompanying a mentor on rounds, and engaging in myriad grunt work. It may have even involved assisting a physician during medical procedures or helping out with other treatment administrations. Given that he was so young, it might have been difficult for Pritchard to grasp a lot of the information he was receiving during this crude period of training. He was being introduced to a plethora of advanced anatomical concepts, so a certain degree of focus and maturity here would have been necessary. He would have definitely had a lot on his plate."
3: And perhaps because he was only in his teens, Pritchard couldn't seem to find his footing. After a little more than two years of training, 17-year-old Pritchard supposedly applied to multiple medical institutions but there are no records of a single acceptance letter. But ultimately, Pritchard found luck in something he would soon learn to exploit, nepotism. Two of Pritchard's uncles were admirals in the Royal Navy. His father was a former captain and his brothers had naval ranks of their own. Likely with their recommendations, 20-year-old Pritchard enjoyed an early application period with the College of Surgeons. He legitimized his expertise with a lie, saying that he'd spent the past three years attending King's College of London. And somehow, those in charge of admissions believed him. On May 29, 1846, after a brief in-person examination, he was admitted into the College of Surgeons. This meant that he could be conscripted onto any of England's naval ships. And just five months later, on November 2nd, 1846, Pritchard was brought on board the HMS Victory. There, he served as a surgeon's assistant in Her Majesty's Navy. It was a moment of notable achievement for Pritchard. His naval rank met his father's high expectations and the medical role fed his own ego all despite the fact that he'd seemingly failed
2: in his medical training. He wasn't alone, Alistair. At this point in history, it didn't take a whole lot of legitimacy to get into medical school or to start practicing medicine for that matter. Someone's entry into training was largely dependent upon how reputable their family was, who was advocating for them, and frankly, how well they presented themselves. There was little in the way of adherence to objective standards of knowledge, and unfortunately, people were often given the benefit of the doubt based on mere image. Today, nepotism is still very useful in helping med school applicants get their foot in the door, but it doesn't get someone through medical school anymore. Students sink or swim once their training begins, and there's only so much outside help can accomplish when it comes down to basic competence. In terms of our story, it's really scary to think about how such little effort resulted in so much responsibility and power. The true losers in this situation were, of course, the patients, and Pritchard's inadequacy could have been incredibly damaging.
3: Though not much is known about Pritchard's earliest patients, his skill sets were soon put to the test. His responsibilities helping the ship's doctor would have been numerous, ranging from dosing out lime juice to prevent scurvy to keeping the decks dry and maintaining sanitary operating conditions. And while we don't know how he felt about these duties, it's clear something went wrong on the HMS Victory. Typically, workers on an 1800s naval ship developed strong relationships, sometimes staying on their vessels for several months at a time. But just a single month after he'd started his first contract, Pritchard picked up a new one with the HMS Collingwood. This may suggest that Pritchard experienced conflict with fellow officers. This theory is only further corroborated by the fact that Pritchard worked on two other ships over the course of the next three years. And by 1850, he signed onto his fifth and final naval ship, the HMS Hecate. There, he remained restless. By this point, he wanted out of the Navy, but he needed to ensure that he'd be able to secure a medical job if he left. And the only way he knew how to get a job was through connections and reputation. Though he didn't have any meaningful contacts outside the Royal Navy, he did have a skill for womanizing. So he seemingly decided that whenever his ship stopped at a port, he tried to woo the ladies at the local balls. Eventually, he'd find some rich woman to marry, someone with an impressive list of influential connections. Money in mind, 24-year-old Pritchard turned up the charm. In 1850, while stationed in Portsmouth, Pritchard spotted a rather plain woman from Edinburgh sitting alone. He soon learned that her name was Mary Jane Taylor and that she was the daughter of a well-to-do silk merchant. Even better, she was the niece of Dr. David Cohen, a retired naval surgeon who had earned quite a name for himself. Pritchard knew a connection with Dr. Cohen could help him advance in the medical world. so. He pounced. Up next, Pritchard exploits his marriage for his career.
1: Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows. Others operate in plain sight. All are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some,
3: In the late summer of 1850, 24-year-old Dr. Edward William Pritchard had recently entered into a contract on a naval ship when he met Mary Jane Taylor. He didn't think she was the most attractive woman he'd ever met, but her uncle was retired naval surgeon Dr. David Cohen, and this relationship was one Pritchard could use to his advantage. So, in autumn 1850, Pritchard married Mary Jane. Following the union, however, Pritchard had to set sail again. He finished his contract aboard the HMS Hecate while Mary Jane shared his resume across various towns in England. By March 1851, Pritchard was happy to learn that his plan had worked. Possibly through his new family connections, he found an opportunity as a private practitioner in Hunmanby. Pritchard settled there with Mary Jane and got to work. It paid to have powerful relatives. Shortly after beginning his first practice, Pritchard decided to open a second one in Filey, a small neighboring village. While it may seem ambitious that Pritchard had two offices, physicians at the time often provided broad services to entire regions rather than a devoted specialty to a small community. So a second branch would have made sense. He likely employed servants to help him keep track of patient requests, but his dual office business wouldn't have been untenable in the English countryside. Plus, his rise to prominence in the area secured him a position as the medical officer of the 3rd District of the Bridlington
2: Union, a local workhouse for the poor. Medical officers in workhouses face daunting conditions, treating many vulnerable, underprivileged patients. They often had little support from the government, and sometimes even had to pay out of their own pockets for medicine. Their duties would primarily consist of examining the physical and mental state of workers, treating the sick, maintaining medical records, and issuing death certificates. The job was also demanding because most physicians were juggling it alongside a private practice or some other public service. This was also a problem for sick employees, because the time-worn and overworked physicians would often neglect their health needs. As a medical officer, Pritchard definitely would have learned what it was like to work in a high-pressure environment, and would have regularly treated a large volume of people with varying ailments. It's likely that he gained a decent amount of practical experience through this job.
3: As he furthered his career, Pritchard deepened his commitment with Mary Jane. After all, their union had gotten him this far. Mary Jane soon became pregnant and gave birth to five children in the years that followed. However, being a family man wasn't exactly Pritchard's forte. He quickly developed a reputation for seducing his female patients. It's also suspected that while in Hunmanby and Filey, he struck up a romance with his servant Lizzie McGurn. While the exact details are unconfirmed, Lizzie and Pritchard seemed to spend a lot of time together in his office. And apparently, it was hard for women to turn him down. As recorded in William Ruffhead's book, The Trial of Dr. Pritchard, one newspaper of the time referred to him as rather a good-looking fellow than otherwise, with clearly defined features and a beard to be much admired by the opposite sex. One man who knew him referred to him as the prettiest liar he'd ever met, and Dr. Pritchard was, most certainly, a liar. When he took up with a local woman, perhaps it went something like this. Step 1. Seduce a patient who'd come to him for treatment. Step 2. Sleep with said patient. Step 3. Shame her for her lack of moral judgment. Step 4 promise not to expose her… at a cost. In such cases, the patients Dr. Pritchard blackmailed would have had little choice but to pay up. If they didn't, they'd risk losing their marriages since anti-adultery laws mostly punished women at the time. If they were caught, their husbands could divorce them and take full custody of the children, often leaving their former wives without any form of financial support. Not to mention, divorced women were often castaways in the eyes of society. Such a fate meant a life of isolation and loneliness. Dr. Pritchard deeply understood how much people feared the loss of social status, and it's possible that he conned quite a few with his scheme. But before long, the townspeople of Hunmanby and Filey seemed to catch on. While Dr. Pritchard treated plenty of patients at first, he soon noticed that townspeople were steering clear of him. So he tried to re-secure his reputation with accolades. He joined the Freemasons, hoping to ascend through their ranks. He also published several books related to the towns he practiced in and wrote articles for medical journals. And in 1857, Pritchard purchased a diploma of Doctor of Medicine in Absentia from the University
2: of Erlangen. In the 1800s, purchasing a medical diploma allowed the wealthy easier access to becoming a doctor. But today, there are laws prohibiting acceptance into medical institutions with money alone. To be trained in absentia, or remotely, thankfully isn't enough in today's world when it comes to getting a medical degree. Although certain aspects of education translate to remote learning as we've definitely seen over the last couple of years, competent doctors need a hands-on education. You can visually diagnose problems like rashes or pink eye, but physical examinations and the familiarity with anatomy require tactile feedback. It boggles the mind that this was once an aspect of schooling that could have been avoided through payment. Despite all of this nonsense, wealth is still useful for aspiring doctors in a lot of ways. For one, it takes care of the costs of medical school and avoids the need for student loans. It can also give people more time to focus on their studies and not have their time usurped by supplemental employment. During my training, I worked a bunch of different jobs to support myself financially, so I understand these dueling stressors. Ultimately, it's really unfair that people like William Pritchard were able to buy legitimacy.
3: Apparently, Pritchard was insecure even after buying a degree because he soon took another step to cushion his resume. On April 1st, 1858, 32-year-old Pritchard became a licentiate of the Society of Apothecaries of London, an important distinction for someone working in the medical field In Dr. Pritchard's mind, all these accomplishments would distract potential clients from any gossip they'd heard. However, his front-facing achievements weren't enough to keep allegations at bay. Perhaps his philandering ways had reached the ears of one too many people. Eventually, Pritchard was forced to sell his first practice and likely delegated the second to physicians who had amassed and kept a wider client base. Desperate for a fresh start, in 1859, 33-year-old Pritchard leapt at a chance to leave town and his wife. Leaving his young family behind, Pritchard accepted a gig as a travel surgeon and set sail on a one-year expedition that took him to both Egypt and the biblical Holy Land. His identity as a seafaring nomad was solidified, and when the journey ended in 1860, he decided he'd try his luck as a surgeon in Glasgow. So he moved to Scotland, where he reunited with his wife and children. The family took up residence at Number 11 Barclay Terrace, and Pritchard began looking for a job in town. he handed out letters of introduction to various practices that alleged he was far more qualified than he actually was. Perhaps Pritchard felt that his purchase degrees and past practices wouldn't be enough to secure him a job. Lying did him no better. Rather than entice Glasgow's medical professionals with his claims that he'd practiced medicine all over the world, he repulsed them. Many were unwilling to even associate with the man. So, Pritchard sought to embellish his skill sets more formally. In October 1860, 34-year-old Pritchard applied to be the chair of surgery at the Andersonian University.
2: Pritchard may have had his own practice, but providing medical care and teaching it to others require very different skill sets. As chair of surgery, he would have been responsible for overseeing the evaluation and monitoring of the university's surgical staff, their procedures and training curriculum. He'd also be expected to teach and perform surgeries himself and to maintain an ongoing communication with university directors. Given what we know about his more or less purchase credentials, Pritchard wouldn't have been qualified to adequately fill this position at any reputable institution. This kind of role requires both an in-depth knowledge and nuanced understanding of a surgeon's professionalism, technique, and its integration into the business of medicine. Pritchard's application to such a high position points to possible delusions about his own expertise.
3: Or maybe Pritchard simply felt faking knowledge was as good as having it. Like he'd reported to the College of Surgeons over a decade prior, Pritchard exaggerated his credentials. His application included claims that he had, quote, many opportunities in almost every part of the world of gaining practical experience and promulgating the principles of modern surgery. Sure, the language was flowery, but it didn't convince the department heads. They gave the position to someone else. Pritchard was incensed. It seemed that no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't seem to catch a break in Glasgow. Thinking connections were the only way to succeed in his career, Pritchard joined the local Freemasons Lodge, as he'd done in Hunnambe. He also joined the Glasgow Athenaeum, a school that combined education and social engagement. The institution melded the traditional courses of a university with speeches and gatherings more tailored to specialties gained through an apprenticeship. It's unclear how Pritchard got a position as a member, but that meant he'd get to give lectures too. Following in the footsteps of other esteemed individuals, Pritchard likely felt he'd finally found his golden ticket into the medical community. It probably did little for Pritchard's superiority complex, knowing Charles Dickens gave the school's inaugural address. But once more, his tall tales got in the way of his capacity to build genuine contacts. Many of his speeches at the Athenaeum bragged about adventures overseas that had nothing to do with medicine. He also claimed to have been dear friends with Giuseppe Garibaldi, a leader of Italy's independence movement. Many revered Garibaldi for his military conquests. Now, for Pritchard to have actually known Garibaldi was a slim shot. But that didn't stop him from etching an engraving onto his walking stick and showing it off at the Glasgow Athenaeum. Somewhat on the nose, it read, Presented by General Garibaldi to Edward William Pritchard. The lie was preposterous. One man had already seen him around town with the same cane, and at the time, it had no special marking of the great Garibaldi. Suffice to say, the men at the institution took caution around Pritchard, and it seems he remained unemployed. To get by, Pritchard likely relied on borrowed money from the banks and the generosity of his father-in-law. Insecure, Pritchard returned to the philandering that had once blackened his name in England. This time, however, Pritchard would incur far more than scorn for his faults. Up next, Pritchard's affair leads to murder. This
0: episode is brought to you by Amazon
3: Prime. Little was going right for 37-year-old Dr. Edward William Pritchard. He'd attempted to scheme his way up the medical ranks through lies, affiliations, and even marriage, but his employment prospects were sparse at best. So Pritchard distracted himself with women. As it happened, house servant Lizzie McGurn had been with the family for some time, perhaps because she might have been Pritchard's mistress, It's highly suspected that the two engaged in a sexual relationship during this time. It's believed he gave her lip service that someday he'd leave his wife and they'd have children of their own. But his true intentions were steeped in lust. He used Lizzie for sex, promising a future he'd never supply her. Young Lizzie, however, may have fallen in love with her boss. So... While scared, it's possible that she was happy to discover she was pregnant with Pritchard's child in 1863. This is merely speculative. Nonetheless, investigators of the time alleged it's the most likely explanation for what happened next. In her book, Dr. Pritchard, the Poisoning Adulterer, W.M. Rhodes puts forth a storyline in which Lizzie McGurn confessed to Pritchard that she was pregnant with his child in the spring of 1863. In that conversation, Pritchard likely convinced his mistress to have an abortion. Though Lizzie was hurt, she may have agreed to his request. Even if she hadn't, it's possible Pritchard proposed he give Lizzie a different procedure for free that she was willing to comply with. It didn't matter what got Lizzie compliant, so long as he could get her alone and shut her up. According to this version of events, in the late evening hours of May 6th, 1863, she and Pritchard entered the home's attic so he could administer the operation. Pritchard requested she lay down as he prepared his tools. In her creative telling, W.M. Rhodes proposes that Pritchard may have begun by pouring chloroform onto a rag and holding it over Lizzie's mouth. At the time, the chemical served as a common anesthetic, so Lizzie wouldn't have questioned it as she lost control of her body. Then, it's believed that Pritchard poured accelerant on her and struck a match.
2: Pritchard's murder method was ruthless. Although chloroform doesn't instantly knock someone out like it does in the movies, it still has really powerful sedating properties. It's a central nervous system depressant and causes a lowered respiratory rate, a slowed heart rhythm, and extreme drowsiness by altering potassium channels in the blood. Because its intense sedating effect slows nerve communication in the brain, chloroform also has the ability to numb pain. This is why it was commonly used in surgeries before eventually being deemed too dangerous. As the fire began to blaze, it's possible that Lizzie was already bordering on unconsciousness due to the chloroform. And inhaling smoke in the burning room would have only hastened her blackout. It's conceivable that the state she was in made it physically impossible for her to escape. As
3: the fire took hold of
2: Lizzie McGurn,
3: Pritchard locked the attic door to ensure that no one could get in, and Lizzie couldn't get out. It was a bold move, given that he had lit his own property ablaze. For whatever reason, he seemed confident that it wouldn't spread to the rest of his home. In the wee hours of the morning, a constable noticed the glare of fire through the upstairs window and rang the doorbell of Pritchard's home. The surgeon was well prepared. Fully dressed, he feigned shock as he answered the door and the constable reported the emergency. Pritchard immediately sprung to action, helping his children evacuate. Smoke filled the air as the cracked attic door exuded the smell of singed skin. But Lizzie McGurn, It was too late. What Pritchard and the constables found after the smoke cleared would have been difficult for anyone to stomach. Parts of Lizzie had been covered by garments, but the exposed flesh on her skin was covered in
2: third-degree burns. It's quite possible that Lizzie was unrecognizable beneath her burns. Third-degree burns are so damaging because they penetrate the skin's protective layers, reaching the soft tissue underneath. When flesh is exposed to direct fire, the soft tissue contracts, causing muscles to shrink and skin to tear and rupture. Body fat also acts as a fuel source for fire, and this is why corpses with a high body fat index burn more intensely. It would be safe to assume that full regions of flesh on Lizzie's body had been scorched so severely that bone, which doesn't burn, was visible through singed muscle. Any portions of Lizzie's flesh that weren't clothed would have been gruesomely disfigured, and the constables who found her corpse were likely shocked. They looked to Pritchard for an
3: explanation. He blamed Lizzie for her dangerous habit of reading late into the evening, claiming she must have fallen asleep when a nearby gas lamp set one of her pages alight. The local paper ran with the story. Its headline the next day read, Lamentable Occurrence, Young Woman Burned to Death. But the contents of the story didn't seem to reflect what actually happened. As investigators pondered the tragedy, they found evidence pointing to a darker sequence of events, one where Pritchard locked Lizzie inside the blaze. The way Lizzie's body was sprawled when they found her revealed that Lizzie showed no signs of struggle, and the post-mortem examiner concluded that the fire started near her body, which meant she might have smelled smoke and run before the carbon monoxide poisoning became lethal. It was later posited that even if she had died from asphyxia before waking, her body would have been contracted or contorted in response. One of the only plausible explanations for Lizzie's positioning was that she'd been
2: sedated when the smoke took hold. It was certainly an interesting theory. It makes some sense to assume that a sedated body would have less of a reflexive neurologic reaction to harsh conditions, like extreme heat and lethal quantities of smoke. This kind of nervous reaction does require some level of consciousness, and it's possible that the chloroform and smoke inhalation rendered her unresponsive. Had she been mildly alert, she would have likely woken and moved before the fire could kill her. While we can't know for certain if lizzie had been totally sedated the post-mortem's discovery of her positioning was highly suspicious
3: to many observers it essentially proved that someone had knocked lizzie out and then lit a fire adding to the mystery was the assertion that the room had been locked from the outside and the only person with the key to the surgery had been Dr. Pritchard. To make matters more suspicious, Pritchard claimed he'd been up to the attic earlier that evening, when the flames would have been rising. It was bizarre that Pritchard hadn't noticed the foul smell of burnt flesh, nor gone to fetch anything from his surgery when the tragedy happened. The book that Pritchard claimed Lizzie must have been reading also wasn't found among the rubble. As days passed and detectives pondered, Pritchard's account grew more and more preposterous. But for whatever reason, probably because she was a lowly house servant, the death of Lizzie McGurn wasn't further investigated. Weeks later, Pritchard filed an insurance claim to collect money for his incinerated property. To make an even bigger profit, Pritchard claimed he'd lost multiple pieces of jewellery in the fire. Conveniently, none of the remnants were found among the debris. Like the authorities, the insurance company smelled something fishy. In response to Pritchard's requests, they only provided him a small amount of what he'd hoped to get to help him rebuild his home. As for the jewellery, Pritchard never got a penny since the insurers didn't believe him. The death of Lizzie McGurn may have cleared him of an illegitimate child, but on the whole, it hadn't been lucrative. Now, his family would need to hire a new servant, and he'd have to relocate to a new office. In trying to absolve himself of sin, Edward William Pritchard had only made a bigger mess. Perhaps Pritchard's wife, Mary Jane, felt sorry for her husband. He seemed to keep running into obstacles, unaware that he was the one causing them. In efforts to turn a new leaf, the two brought their family to a new residence at No. 22 Royal Crescent. But the place wasn't exactly up to par with what Pritchard felt the abode of a well-respected surgeon should look like. He decided he wanted to live at a house in Clarence Place on Socket Hall Street. However, this wasn't exactly feasible given his low cash flow. He had very few patients, he couldn't qualify for a loan, and his wife's family's generosity had already carried Pritchard so far. Ultimately, however, after receiving letters of prayer and encouragement from Mary Jane's wealthy parents, Pritchard decided he could use their sympathies to his advantage. He thought... Surely they'd offer him financial assistance so he could buy a new residence for their grandchildren. They just needed a little... nudging. During the summer, Mary Jane went away with her children, possibly to her parents' house to secure the money they'd need for another new home. Meanwhile, with his wife and children away, Pritchard took an interest in the family's new house servant... 15-year-old Mary McLeod. Throughout the summer of 1864, he routinely sexually assaulted young Mary. It seemed Dr. Pritchard had learned nothing from his past until Mary McLeod revealed that she'd missed her period for the past two months. Pritchard knew he couldn't bear to lose another maid to a mysterious fire, After all, rumours still circulated about the first one. So, Pritchard paced, thinking on his feet, pondering his next move. For a moment, he may have looked at beautiful Mary McLeod and thought to himself how much easier his life would be if his dull wife wasn't in the picture. Her family may have provided for them, but living up to their expectations for his medical career was no small feat. If only there was a way to get their cash and their sympathies quickly. But there was. In fall 1864, he made up his mind. Then he set out to purchase poison from his local pharmacy. A slow death for Mary Jane Pritchard was the perfect prescription for boosting the doctor's reputation. Next time, Pritchard poisons his wife's tabioca pudding, resulting in more than one homicide. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.
1: You aren't supposed to know about them unless they want you to powerful groups with their own very specific agendas and if you find yourself on the inside good luck getting out hi i'm hannah Maguire. and i'm saruti bala join us every tuesday for our new spotify original from podcast sinister societies whether it's doomsday predictions deadly greed or world domination Each week, we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.